The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're going through the book of 1 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, the church that he started. He planted this church uh, along with some brothers in the Lord as God led. He pastored that church once he got it started for about a year and a half. It was a very corrupt culture in which these people got saved and began to have a church. Probably the majority of them didn't have scriptural Old Testament background, so they had to pretty much learn the Christian worldview from scratch. They didn't have the whole New Testament either, so they were dependent upon less information than we are about Christianity and God, even though they did have an apostle living in their midst. And after a year and a half, Paul left them uh, in the hands of probably younger or newly trained leadership and he went to do church planning in other cities, uh, ended up in a Ephesus. And while he was in Ephesus, probably been away from this church for a couple of years, he got word that there were problems at his former church in Corinth. Uh, severe problems, not little ones, and multitudinous problems. Uh, relationship problems, unity, huge problem, dividing the church. He dealt with that in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. We talked about that. Uh, Paul addressed that issue, hit it hard, uh, encouraging them that the local church needs to be united in Christ and not divisive. Uh, And then he also uh, addressed moral issues, and that started in chapter 5, and that goes on through pretty much 5 through chapter 8, and actually a little bit beyond. And that's kind of where we're at now. We're in the section of Corinthians where Paul's uh, dealing with morality, sexual morality, morality. and related issues and trying to give them a reminder of the Christian worldview and ethic, which was really foreign to their worldview prior to coming to Christ. Uh, And that's where we are. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, in light of that moral issue, he's specifically dealing with marriage and singleness. Because once again, as former pagans, they didn't have the Old Testament understanding Genesis chapter 1 and 2 of what God's design for marriage was. So they were a wee bit confused and basically all of chapter 7 for 40 verses Paul's trying to unscramble their messed up thinking about marriage singleness divorce separation uh, celibacy sex in general the danger of immorality in all of its forms in relation to being a Christian and in relation to the church and also in relation to a family. So pretty much everybody in this room is going to be found somewhere in 1 Corinthians 7 where there is actually a personal word for you and me from Almighty God through the living Scripture. It's pretty amazing. And we're going to go in the order that Paul gave it. So far, just to bring you up to speed, we covered 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, which was kind of the thesis sentence. So go ahead and look at that. That was... Uh, Paul was quoting the Corinthians in a letter they had written him in correspondence. Apparently, when Paul was reading their question or correspondence, he realized, wow, they are really confused because their statement was this in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote to me in the letter, when you said, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Literally, it is good for a man not to have sexual intimacy with a woman. That was the Corinthians adage or what they were living by now that they were Christians. 
And it was coming across as unqualified. They meant it in a universal sense that it is always good for a man to be celibate and abstain from any kind of sexual relations with a woman at any given time. And Paul uh, was getting back with them now saying, no, that is not true. You're making this too much of a blanket universal statement. That statement isn't always true to say that it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Because right away he says, I'll give you an example of when it's not good to refrain from touching a woman, and that's if you're married. If you are married, you don't refrain from touching your wife. You need to have ongoing, continual, physical intimacy with one another. And the Corinthians were actually implementing that philosophy that they were messed up on in their marriages. And probably what happened is you had two pagans who got married as unbelievers, and then one of them got saved after they got married, And now the new Christian, who's somewhat naive and doesn't know the fullness of God's revelation yet and immature, and maybe being influenced by their Greek culture and the dualism that was taught and perpetuated many times that anything physical is evil and only things that are immaterial are spiritual and of virtue. And so the new Christian that got saved in the marriage and their spouse is still not saved The new Christian is thinking, oh, if I have physical relations with my unsaved spouse, I am going to become unclean. They are not sanctified. They are not holy. They are not saved. And that would be a violation of me spiritually. And so I need to abstain from physical contact with my unsaved spouse. That's one very realistic scenario that was driving this. And Paul had to address it and say, no, you are still married. It doesn't matter if your spouse is a Christian or not. You need to continue ongoing, having ongoing physical intimacy with your spouse because you are still one while you are married, whether both of you are believers or not. Another possibility of their wrong thinking was just when they became a Christian, they're thinking that uh, sex is sinful because that was a common view. It's even a common view today in many circles. And now that I'm a Christian, I've got to abstain from sex because being spiritual is all about abstaining in celibacy, and that's the higher road. Celibacy is a higher road to God's approval. And then Paul says, no, that is not true. That is wrong thinking. And then in First Timothy, we already read it in chapter 5, he said that's actually, uh, or chapter 4, that is evil satanic thinking. If you think being celibate and refraining from Physical intimacy is more spiritual. You are wrong. That is a doctrine of Satan himself. And so he goes on from verses 2 to verse 6, which we looked at last week, that if you are married, believers are unequally yoked. It doesn't matter. As long as you are married, you need to continue to have physical intimacy with one another in a reciprocal, mutual manner. And he gave several reasons why. Your body, husband, doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your wife. And you, wife, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your hubby, and he needs to be allowed to enjoy your body. That's what God said. It was a gift from God to you, and it's mutual. That was one reason. He also said it is your obligation, it is your duty to fulfill your spouse in terms of physical intimacy. And if you don't, that is robbery. That is theft. That is sin. So quit. And that's why he says in verse 5, adamantly, stop depriving one another. Quit depriving your spouse regardless of the excuses of sexual fulfillment while you're married. The only exception is if you mutually agree to take a short period of time for prayer and then you come back together again quickly and continue physical intimacy with one another because if you don't, 
you're opening the door for satanic temptation for one of you or both of you to fall, sexually speaking. So that was that's a summary of what I preached on two weeks ago. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 6. So hopefully those of you who are married have been applying the Scriptures in a very practical way for the last two weeks, knowing that it is a blessed thing before Almighty God and a command from Him. And as a result... Hopefully, the Lord God is also blessing your marriage, your friendship, your relationship, and your trust with one another as a result, because He will. When we are obedient to Him, He will. So the first, so as we go through this chapter, we're going to see that Paul uh, deals with different demographics of family uh, a section at a time. So the first group that he dealt with primarily were Christian married couples. That was verses 2 to 6. And then he gives the key verse in verse 7. And then after that, he's going to deal with another category of people in the church that he calls those who are unmarried, especially widows, is, I think, the best translation. Now, to those who are not married, and especially widows, he's going to talk to that category of people. And after he talks to those who are not married and and the widows, then he's going to talk to those who are married and either separated or thinking about divorce. And then after he talks about those, he's going to talk about unequally yoked couples. We have those in this church. One spouse is not a believer. Paul's got a word for you very specifically. Then after he talks about them, he's going to talk about single people, which he calls virgins. Verse 25 of chapter 7, Parthenos is the Greek word. Those who have never had intimacy with another person, they are virgins indeed. They are singles. And it's specifically zeroing in on virgins or people who are actually engaged, engaged couples. So he, he covers the gamut in this chapter. And it's very practical. So let's go ahead and look today. Uh, the title of the sermon I put, Singleness or Marriage. Which should we choose? Let's go ahead and highlight those three verses I want to focus on today, starting at verse 7. After talking to Christian married couples that they should be fulfilling each other in an ongoing, continual, regular manner in terms of physical intimacy with one another. He makes a transition in verse 7, and he says, Yet I wish that all believers were even as I myself am. And what he meant by that at the time, we're pretty certain that the Apostle Paul was single. He wasn't married at this time. That's actually confirmed in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, among other places. So Paul wasn't married. He was single. And he says, Man, you know, I just wish every, every Christian was like me, single and content because that would eliminate all marriage problems wouldn't it that would end all marriage counseling sessions that would end all divorce court and all the fees and uh, lawyers fees that go with it and on and on it just eliminates so many problems he's being idealistic here but he's also a realist not just idealistic so he says i wish that everybody was single like me and then we wouldn't have to deal with all these issues and i wouldn't have to write this chapter 40 verses but that's just not reality uh and then each but the reality is however in verse 7 each person says man uh that is actually not in the text just each person each christian every christian has his own gift from god one in this manner and another in that this is an amazing principle by the way you should highlight verse 7 because seven, chapter 7, verse 7 is the key to understanding virtually every other verse in 1 Corinthians 7. And if you don't have 1 Corinthians 7, 7 as the lens by which to interpret the rest of 1 Corinthians 7, you are going to be incredibly confused as you read through this thing because you're going to be saying, wait a minute, Paul's contradicting himself here. 
at the end of the chapter, he says it's better not to marry. But early on, he said it's better to marry. And uh, and on and we're going to see that when we're done talking here. So you've got to understand, Paul, first and foremost, once every pr- uh, believer and Christian understand God has given you a gift. He's given me a gift. If you're a believer, he's given you the gift of marriage or the gift of celibacy. He's even going to give you the specific litmus test to figure out if you have the gift of celibacy or not in a verse we're going to look at today. So just sitting here at the beginning of the sermon, if I were to ask you, don't say anything out loud. Keep it to yourself. Keep it in your brain. If I were to ask you, do you have the gift of marriage or do you have the gift of celibacy? It would be interesting to see if you you could even answer that question. Because you might be, well, I've never thought about it. Or as a Christian, you might be, well, I'm not sure. Or as a Christian, you might be definitive. Oh, absolutely, I do not have the gift of celibacy. I must have the gift of marriage. And that might even be true of you if you're not even married. That might be true of you if you're single. And you know definitively, I don't have the gift of celibacy. Or maybe you know, and you're one of those very, 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 very rare people that knows for sure, I have the gift of celibacy. It is rare. It is not the norm. Uh, Genesis 2.18 makes that clear. When he created Adam and Eve, and he said, it is not good for the man to be alone. That was not God's ideal design from the beginning, but God over time has made an exception of this unique charismatic gift called celibacy or singleness for the Lord. Uh, Just because you're single doesn't mean you have the gift of singleness. And maybe like a friend of mine who has been single for 67 years of her life, she is a believer. She is adamant that she does not have the gift of singleness. And admittedly, she is very frustrated. But she's also resigned herself that that is in the providence of God and he is her sufficiency. So chapter 7, verse 7, we're just going to keep going back to that verse over and over again. It'll just set everything straight. So a challenge for you, do you even know if you have the gift of singleness or not? Which takes us to point number one. I got four points there. So let's look at point number one. Uh, Every believer has a gift from God either singleness or marriage. So if you're a Christian, you've got one of those two gifts. I will say this. uh, Sometimes this gift is not discoverable until you're a little older in life. Like right now, say you're 11 years old or 13 years old or 14, and I'm saying this, and you think you're a Christian and you're 14 years old, and you're wondering, hmm, I don't know if I have the gift of singleness. You might not know until you're 17, 18, 23, or whatever, because something you have to grow and develop and mature. In all ways, socially and also in terms of your hormones and physiologically. That's God just practically uses that uh, to give you an indication. Now, because I know from firsthand experience, children age 5, 7, 9, 11, 14, usually boys of the male species, when asked, do you think you'll ever get married someday? Oh, no, I'm never going to get married. Girls are gross. I've heard that time and time and time and time again. I've worked with children for 20, 25 years. And it's amazing how many of those young boys that I used to coach in flag football 20 years ago. And I look on Facebook and, wow, that guy that thought girls were gross, he's married and has three kids. How, How did that happen? At some point in his life, he got over the idea that girls were gross, and he actually thought that one was kind of cute. So, And that was part of the maturing process. So, you know, don't. Jump the gun in terms of assessing yourself. It will come with time. It will come with maturity. But Paul is clear. Every believer has a gift from God. And by the way, and I, I said this a couple of weeks ago, 
Paul's going to argue that if you have the gift of singleness, then you should really consider remaining single. And he's going to give reasons why in the rest of the chapter. If you have the gift of singleness, and in this congregation right here, that would be true of very few people, statistically speaking. But if you're one of those rare people with the gift of singleness, you really should consider staying single in light of its benefits in terms of how you could serve the Lord. Uh, But at the same time, Paul says you're not commanded to or obligated to. Don't feel guilty if you do get married, if you have the gift of singleness. You have every freedom, right, and blessed uh, gift from God or blessing from God to get married, even if you have the gift of singleness. So you have an option. If you have the gift of celibacy, you have two options, to remain single or get married. If you have the gift of marriage, you have one option. It's get married. You shouldn't remain single if you don't have the gift of celibacy. So very key. Verse 7, let's go on to 8 and 9 now in this category of people that Paul calls uh, the unmarried and the widows. So if you're a widow or a widower, this is talking to you. We have widows in our church. This would be talking to you. Uh, Let's look at verse 8, and this would be uh, point number 2. But I say to the unmarried, unmarried, it's just uh, the word for marriage, and then Paul puts a negative on the front of it in Greek. Very simple. It's a general statement. It's a categorical statement, an umbrella term. It includes, I believe, every category of person who is not married at the time. So this message is to anybody who is not married, whether you are a virgin, single person, never been married before, or maybe you are divorced and you're now single, applies to you, or maybe you were married and your wife died and you're now a widower, it applies to you, or if you got married and your husband died and you're now a widow, this applies to you. So this is uh, singles across the board. This word is for you in light of keep in mind first corinthians 7 7 whether you have the gift of celibacy or not but i say to the unmarried those who aren't married and to widows uh and well why does it say and to widows if it's if unmarried includes widows why does paul say widows again and it's paul's use of the word and in the greek text kai very common usage it's like an emphatic it's uh, he's pointing out a particular group out of the whole And it could be read this way. But I say to those who are married, especially the widows. And he's talking practically now as a pastor in the church. Because in the Corinthian culture 2,000 years ago, it was not uncommon to have a church filled with widows for a lot of different reasons. Because of the way uh, women were treated and men were treated. Many times women were just abandoned. And they were left single. Or actually in that Greek culture, many times from history, uh, the men were marrying much younger women. So... Husbands were dying off, you know, 20, 30-year difference makes a big difference. And so Paul's left in the church with a lot of widows in his hands. And also we know from 1 Timothy 5, the Apostle Paul and God obligated the church to take care of widows financially in the church. And so their First Corinthians, or the Corinthian church could have been overloaded with a lot of widows in the church, and that made the church responsible for caring for their needs. Um, but they have, and, and a lot of times widows have specific needs that others don't have, especially Paul says, you're a widow indeed if you're age 60 and over, and if you're 60 and over as a widow, and your husband isn't around, and maybe no immediate family is around, and your father has passed away, who's going to care for you? You can't work a full-time job and meet your needs, and so uh, Paul's really zeroing in here on a very practical need in the church, and so that's why I believe he's saying all single people, and especially take note of the widows in our church. So if you're single today, this verse applies to you. And here's what he said. Here's his word of encouragement to you. But this I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good, Kalan, it is uh, 
morally good. It is an excellent thing. It's not a bad thing. It is a good thing for you to remain, even as I am, to remain single. So if you're a widow or single, it's a good thing for you to remain, remain single. Uh, which takes us to point number two. Believers with the gift of celibacy will be blessed by staying single. That's what he means when he says good, that specific word. It is a, a moral good. It is an excellent thing. It's looked on by God with favor. We need to hear that in our culture today because in our culture, especially sometimes in our Christian culture abroad, if you're like 32 and you're not married, many times people raise their eyebrows and automatically conclude, ooh, I wonder what's wrong with her. Or, ooh, I wonder what's wrong with him. Because sometimes people just think automatically, well, you must be married. And if you're not married, uh, you can't get along with people or you've got some skeletons in your closet. And Paul's saying that is so not true. If you're single, especially if you are gifted with the gift of singleness, that is a good thing. That is a blessed thing. And if you are a believer and love the Lord, God can maximize your service to him in the church, in the world during your life in a way that could never be accomplished by someone who is a married and especially someone who's married with a child and especially someone who is married with four children or somebody married with 10 children. I mean, there are people like that. And with that obligation, you have less and less in the tank to focus and give to God. And so that's why Paul is saying, hey, don't you need to understand your lot before the Lord. If you are single, no matter what, and you have the gift of singleness, that is a good and blessed thing. So that's verse 8. Believers with the gift of celibacy will be blessed if they're faithful to the Lord by staying single. So consider that option seriously. Uh, then go on to verse 9. Say to the unmarried, the singles, the widows, especially that is good for them to remain even as I am. Verse 9 says, but, but, Again, I, this, verse 8, by the way, is Paul's recommendation. It is not a command. That's why he says in verse 9, but if they do not have self-control. Present tense. If they are not practicing sexual self-control. If single people, single believers are not practicing sexual self-control, then Houston, we have a problem. And Paul's a realist. He knows that. And Paul says... You know what? You can't allow uh, porneia, he calls it, immorality, sexual compromise, sexual sin, any kind of sexual fulfillment outside the confines of a man and a wife. We cannot allow that to go on in the church. It will poison the church. It will undermine the church and the corporate body. It also can't be allowed to go on in your own personal life. It will undermine your spiritual walk with the Lord. And Christians routinely and truly do struggle with Sexual sin. And Paul's trying to help these believers to stay pure. And here's the solution. If you are single, whether uh, widowed, a widower, divorced, a virgin, and you know for a fact that you cannot maintain sexual self-control, then here's the solution in verse 9. Paul says, let them marry. Let them marry. That is a command. That phrase there, let them them marry actually it's an aorist imperative in the text uh, which means that it is a one-time act and it's an imperative which means it is a command which means it is not an option so point number three in your outline singles who don't have the gift of celibacy 
should get married. Pretty simple. Let them marry. Singles who don't have the gift of celibacy must get married. Singles who don't have the gift of celibacy are commanded to get married. Singles who don't have the gift of celibacy need to get married. Now, that doesn't mean like get married next week in Las Vegas. It's a command, but it's to be a command fulfilled in a God-honoring way. Meaning, wow, okay, maybe you don't even know anybody yet. So what do you do? You start praying. God, uh, I read your word. I heard that sermon preached. I don't have the gift of celibacy. I need a wife. And I am totally dependent upon you, God. And please hurry. That might be the nature of your prayer. But entrust that to the Lord. And maybe you've got to wait a little bit. Praying that God brings the perfect compliment into your life. He honors that prayer. You meet a girl. She's a Christian. You're like-minded. You start exploring. You date for six months. Then uh, you're thinking about engagement. You talk to uh, the parents and see how that goes and the elders of your church or whoever your counselors are. And then you decide to get engaged. And so then you're engaged for like seven years. And then you decide, uh, no, that's probably too long of an engagement. Uh, And then you decide to get engaged. And then you have the big wedding day and the celebration. And you fulfill Proverbs 18 where it says that, Uh, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Marriage is a good thing from God's point of view. And you celebrate that marriage. But maybe the whole process took like three years. So when I say, okay, if you don't have the gift of celibacy, and Paul says here with dogmatic authority from Almighty God, get married, that doesn't mean do it next week. So use God's wisdom, use your counselors, be in prayer, Go to God's word, be directed by his spirit, do it the right way in a way that honors him. And the time period will be different for just about every couple. Most important thing is waiting on God's timetable for that. But the goal is what matters. You need to make a deliberate uh, choice in your mind with understanding. I don't have the gift of celibacy. I need to get married. That's what you need to do. And you start by committing it to prayer. I've actually taught this at Bible studies here and there over the years. Shared one with you last week that I shared. It was in a Bible study about 20 years ago. There was another different Bible study where I shared this. And most of the people in it were like college single people. And I just shared this verse. That was the teaching of the day. If you don't have self-control, then you need to get married. That is a command. You must get married. You need to get married. You're commanded to get married. And then somebody just came up very angry afterwards and got me in a corner and chewed off my ear and it turns out they weren't angry at me as much as they were angry at god and scripture because they were single they didn't have the gift of uh, marriage they had i mean they didn't have the gift of celibacy they had the gift of marriage so they thought and they have been waiting a long time and it's like god never provided here god is saying i'm supposed to get married and yet god doesn't provide and they were very frustrated very angry we had to talk it out a little bit and i understand that i remember the first wedding i ever performed was a fella uh, who was 40 years old at the time, and his fiance that was getting married was 39. Neither of them had ever been married before. Uh, the 39-year-old lady basically never had a boyfriend her whole life. And, but she did say, I just thought I'd always get married, and it just never happened. I thought, I'd, and when I turned 35, I said, forget it. I give up. That was her testimony. The guy, on the other hand, he wanted to get married since he was like 17, had a couple of girls that he thought might be and he was a believer growing up a believer and he just thought he was going to get married and he wanted to get married and i think he was pursuing uh marriage with a couple of the different ladies that god brought along the way in his 20s and his 30s and then uh, just 
bottomed out in his 30s, mid-30s, and he said he just became angry with God for the same reason. I don't have the gift of celibacy. I want to get married. I've been wanting to get married for 20 years. God, you didn't provide. And he just kind of, for a while, just turned his back on God and said, forget it. Was angry at God. He didn't lose the salvation. He was frustrated. He was unfulfilled. He was discontent. He was battling with sin in his personal life. And he shared this story with me. I said, wow. Thank you for sharing. And he met this lady at the church I was a pastor at, and God brought them together, and they were friends for a while, and they started dating for several months, and then they decided to get engaged, and now we're on the brink of getting marriage. And I said, wow, okay, so you, you tell that story about how you were angry with God and you were frustrated and engagements were broken off, and, and then you just resigned yourself to the fact you are never going to be married. And now look what God, look at her, look at how cute she is. Now at age 40, look what God brought into your life. Do you think it was worth the wait? Big smile on his face. Yes. It was worth the wait. And he concluded, God knows better than me. God knew what I needed better than myself. So, I mean, that was just a, I will never forget that. It was an indelible lesson that I learned that day uh, of waiting on God. It's awesome. So that's hopefully to give you some encouragement. And then time went by. They moved out of the area. They sent me a year and a half later a cute little picture of their baby boy. And then a couple of Christmases later, oh, there's two. And then maybe next Christmas, four or five. Who knows? But uh, God is blessing that relationship. So n- point number three, singles who don't have the gift of celibacy need to get married, should get married, must get married, are commanded to get married. And if you don't have a partner right now, just you got to start with prayer. And then start asking people to pray for you. I've talked to people Single people, very frustrated. I want to get married. And my first question always, you want to get married, you're really frustrated, you don't have a spouse, you don't have a date, you don't have any prospects. Have you been praying about, when was the last time you prayed about this? I can't tell you how many people, they stop and pause and, uh, 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 I don't think I've been praying about it. You have not because you ask not. That's what the Word of God says. You have got to start Asking God specifically, Lord, please. That's what Moses did. He pleaded with God very specifically. He even reminded God of his word. Moses reminded God of the promises he made in his word. You need to do the same thing. Father, I do not have the gift of celibacy. Your word says this. You spoke this to be true. God, I need your help. Please provide for me. You pray according to the the will of God. God will. He promises to fulfill his word. You've got to trust him. And you've got to ask other people to pray on your behalf, interceding for each other. There, there are all kinds of different people I pray for. There are single people I pray for by name who I know for a fact they want to be married. They've told me. Uh, Pastor, pray for a wife for me. Keep praying. And one by one, ching, ching, ching. It's happening. Wow, God's answering prayer. Sometimes slower than we like, but God cares. So if you are a single person, you have a desire to be married, you are frustrated, you even got to a point where you were mad and bitter with God, or you've just thrown in the towel and given up, don't. Go back to the Lord, confess your sin of bitterness and lack of patience and blaming God. He'll forgive you. Ask Him to give you a new sense of 
joy in him and renew your commitment to praying to him and trusting in him in this area. Make yourself vulnerable with those around you to ask them to pray and intercede on your behalf. Look what, look what my, God might do. Get back in his will in this area of your life. Yeah, I remember when I was talking to that person as they cornered me. How can you say, just command people to get married? Let them get married. I said, well, how can I say? I was just reading the Bible verse. It says right there. Let the, that's what Paul said. You don't have the gift of singleness. Get married. Well, how could Paul say that? Well, he was moved by the Spirit of God. It is the voice of God that said that. Don't get mad at Paul. Anyway, uh, so look at the middle of verse 9. But if they do not have self-control, uh, let them get married. By the way, marriage is a good thing. Marriage is a gift. Marriage is the only context to relieve your sexual passions and desires. Anyway, it's easy in the world today, if you're not a believer, to exert and fulfill your sexual passions as a single person because the world just says you don't need to get married, right? It's on television. It's all over the place. So uh, they don't honor the institution of marriage. But we as believers do. Let them marry. For it is better... To get married, if you don't have the gift of singleness, then to burn. Now, the word for burn there is very interesting, uh, where, where we get the word pyro, pyromaniacs. It's better to get married than to pyrosthai. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. A lot of your translations will add in italics, with passion. The word, the phrase with passion is not in the original text. The word burn is, the verb there. It's legitimate because it is talking about burning with passion, burning with desire. That is clearly what Paul is talking about in the context. It is better to get married if you don't have the gift of singleness, if you can't maintain sexual self-control, than trying to stay single and be all religious and bite your upper, upper lip and you know, do whatever, inflict your body with pain every time you have a sexual desire or urge like many of the church fathers did, beating themselves, asceticism, thinking they were spiritual, thinking that uh, sexual expression was evil, that isn't what God wants. Because you'll never change yourself. You'll never overcome that. Because it's in your DNA. It's your very chemistry. It is inerrant and innate within you that you were gifted by God to get married and not be celibate. So you can beat yourself all you want to. It's not going to work. You will continue because it's from the inside. And that's the verb used when he says, it is better to get married than to burn. Key, that word where we get pyro, pyromaniac, it is present tense. Contrary to the command, let them marry, that was aorist tense. This is present tense. It is continual. It is ongoing. It will never subside. You can't get rid of it. It's in the middle voice, meaning it is within you. It is innate. It is inborn. It is inherent. You can't change who you are. That's how God made you. So face reality. Diagnose yourself properly. This is you. It is better to get married than to burn with passion, sexual passion, sexual lust try to do that for too long you're going to fall into sin you're going to fall into some sexual sin somewhere in your life it's just inevitable the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak that's what jesus said you can count on it apply it to yourself my spirit is willing i am the king of good ideas and good intentions but my flesh is weak my flesh will cave every time personalize the scripture apply it to yourself so point number four uh, determining your gift is based on passion or desire. And you could put sexual in front of that. 
sexual desire, passion, contentment, or the ability to maintain sexual self-control. So it's very specific. So there's your litmus test. I ask you, do you have the gift of singleness or marriage? Well, I don't know. Okay, then apply the test. Do you have contentment in all these areas, the sexual contentment, desire, passion, and able to live a God-honoring life in holiness and in purity? You're not distracted. You're not encumbered. You're not weak. You're not vulnerable. You don't fall to temptation routinely. And I said, determining your gift of singleness is based on desire, sexual desire and passion, not on economics. So it, it's not trying to figure out, uh, it, would it be economically, financially beneficial for me to get married or not? That's not what it's talking about. Uh, it's not talking about loneliness. This is where people get confused. They're trying to figure out, yeah, boy, I'd be lonely if I don't get married. Maybe I, maybe I do have the gift of marriage because I'd be lonely. That's not what it's talking about. Because if you could have the gift of celibacy, and the thought of not getting married, you're st- and you're thinking you're going to be lonely. So you can have thoughts of loneliness and still have the gift of celibacy. Loneliness is not an issue of your personal self-control. And it would make sense that you would think you were lonely if you were a single person. God knows that. God created every single human being in His image. His image is the triune God. God is a triune social being that requires ongoing intimacy and fellowship with other people and interaction fellowship so if you are a lonely person and you need fellowship the answer isn't just i want to get married i want to have a husband if you have the gift of celibacy the answer to your loneliness is if you're a christian is in the local church and fellowship with your sisters in the lord and brothers in the lord maybe your immediate family so you can find that or fulfill that void of loneliness in fellowship that's the answer so don't confuse that with trying to figure out whether you have the gift of celibacy or marriage or not, because some people get that confused. Or uh, they base the assessment on whether they have the gift of celibacy or not on social status. They feel awkward. Wow, if I don't get married, everybody else in my family got married, so I need to get married. What will my parents think if I don't get married? And they expect me to get married, and all my friends are married, and uh, the culture says I should be married, at least the Christian culture. And if I don't, then I'm going to feel weird and awkward. That That is not the way to determine whether you have the gift of celibacy or not. Or maybe, and it's not on a sentimental basis either. Uh, so let's Paul is very focused. We need to keep it there in terms of determining whether we have the gift of singleness or marriage. So that's point number four. With that, um, I want to give you. So here's the takeaway or the question for you, and that's the reflection on the bottom of the page. Do you know how God has gifted you? Has He given you the gift of singleness or marriage? Maybe you can answer it already today. Maybe it's crystal clear in your mind. Maybe you're not sure. That's fair. Maybe there's a time of discovery, exploration, time, maturity, prayer, counsel, feedback, further thoughts, searching the scriptures. Not necessarily the light's going to go on today, but at least you know where to go in scripture specifically, and you know what God's requirements are. And if boy, I tell you, if you figure that out, and if you diagnose it properly, whether you're gifted with celibacy or marriage, it'll make a huge difference. And once you figure it out for yourself, I know that as a Christian, I have the gift of marriage. I have the gift of marriage because I don't have the gift of celibacy. That's how I figured it out because that's what Paul says in verse 9. Then the next important thing is, if you're married, apply that to your spouse. Do you know if your spouse has the gift of celibacy or not? That is huge. A lot of married people, they don't realize that they married somebody with the gift of celibacy. And it never crossed their mind. And like I said, I already said that, you're operating on different frequencies in terms of your desire. 
You're like FM, they're AM. You guys never connect. There's a problem. You need to know your spouse. Learn your spouse, says First Peter 3. So you think and assess, okay, I think my spouse, wow, I think my spouse actually might have the gift of celibacy. And then you ask them and they say, oh, absolutely not, I have the gift of marriage. And then you guys can fight about it and stuff and hopefully come to an agreement where you both know where each of you stand. And if you're uh, single, you need to figure it out. If you are engaged, you need to figure it out by yourself right now. And if you are engaged, you need to think about this regarding your partner that you're engaged to. You need to challenge them with this thought. Or if you're dating someone, you need to know definitively where you are. And they need to know definitively where they are. And they need to know where you are on this issue before you get married. Because it will play into your marriage and how you relate to one another, how you are either fulfilled or not fulfilled uh, with one another's needs and desires. Paul is so incredibly practical and helpful. I just pray and trust this information, especially if it is new for those of you who are married, is going to help bring some just refreshing, blessed wind of fulfillment in your marriage in a new way, in a new way to understand and communicate as husband and wife as you are one. And you've got to put the other person first in every respect. So that was the challenge. With that, I'm just going to close with this and we'll go into communion. Uh, I put interpretive challenges down there. I want you to add one more that I thought of uh, later, and that's 5A, 5B. I put them in couplets because... On first blush, they look like they contradict each other. But 5A, 5B. 5A is uh, widows, stay single. 1 Corinthians 7.40. Widows, you should stay single, said Paul. And then in 5B, Paul says, widows, get married. Now, doesn't that sound like a wee bit of a contradiction? That was from Paul. Two, Two different epistles. Widows stay single. Hey, widows get married. Well, are you schizophrenic, Paul? No. Context determines what he's talking about. Uh, And the verse reference for 5B, widows get married, is 1 Timothy 5.14. Context there is younger widows. Younger widows who do not have the gift of celibacy, you need to get married. Uh, Widows, when he says stay single, that is only widows who have the gift of celibacy. Uh, And then just let me review one through four. Uh, Proverbs says marriage is good. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, celibacy is good. Is that a contradiction? No, they're both good. They are. They are both good. Marriage is is a blessed institution. Celibacy is good. Celibacy is good only if you have the gift of singleness. Number two, marriage is better, 1 Corinthians 7, 9. Celibacy is better, 1 Corinthians 7, 38. When I preached on this three weeks ago, uh, on 1 Corinthians 7, 1, somebody came up and pointed out 1 Corinthians 7, 38 to me about that contradiction in the chapter. Yeah, on the surface, it looks like a contradiction. Here's what Paul means. Marriage is better if you don't have the gift of singleness. Celibacy is better if you have the gift of celibacy. That solves the contradiction. It's clearly what Paul's talking about. 3A and B. Marriage brings problems. 1 Corinthians seven twenty eight. For a lot of different reasons, Paul will tell us specifically what he's talking about. Well, then I'm going to stay celibate because uh, that'll be a trial-free life. Huh? 3B, celibacy brings problems, especially if you don't have the gift of celibacy and you're trying to remain celibate. You will have sexual problems and temptations in your life that could mess up your life. And then finally, 4A and B, celibacy is good. And then 4B, celibacy is bad, says Scripture in Genesis 2.18. And again, it comes down to, Do you have the gift of singleness or not? 
If you have the gift of singleness, celibacy is good. If you don't have the gift of singleness, celibacy is bad. So every one of those statements, you can't pull them out of context. You've got to read the Apostle Paul and all of Scripture in its context. God is clear, and he'll make it clear to us to understand him properly. Well, with that, let's go to God's Word as we have the privilege to have communion today. And I want to read from uh, Matthew chapter 6. If you have a Bible and you want to flip there to prepare our hearts. If you are a Christian, you are invited to be a part of the Lord's table, taking communion. God gave two ordinances to the church, baptism and communion. And Jesus commanded, if you're a Christian, you should get baptized. And if you're a Christian, you should take communion in a regular, ongoing manner. Uh, And the idea, God wants us to have these tangible reminders of the bread and the cup. And as we uh, eat and drink, we are reminded of what Jesus did for us. He died for our sins. He lived a perfect life without sin. And then he offered himself as a substitute for sin on the cross. And while he was hanging on the cross for six hours, God the Father was pouring out his wrath on Jesus, who was sinless, on Jesus, who was God in a body. Jesus didn't deserve to be punished, but he willingly got punished by God the Father to be punished and absorb the sin and the wrath that sinners deserve, that I deserved. And so Jesus died in my place. He was my substitute. He absorbed God's wrath on my behalf. He died in my place. Then he was buried. He rose again from the dead, proving that he conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered all that was evil on my behalf. He ascended into heaven, reigns on high as Lord of the universe. And if I believe that, I can be a child of God. And every time I take communion, I celebrate that great reality. It's a celebration of the, the gospel. Now, Jesus warned, as did the Apostle Paul, before you take communion, if you're a Christian, here's our warning. It's a celebration, but there's also a warning that goes with it. Uh, Part of the warning, I want to read from uh, starting at verse 12 of Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said, before you take communion, examine yourself before God. Evaluate yourself where you're at spiritually. Matthew 5, Jesus said, evaluate yourself spiritually as well. And in particular, evaluate yourself regarding fellowship with other believers and your attitude. If you have sin, if you have a grudge, if you have unforgiveness, if you have bitterness, if you have anger towards another person, then you need to refrain from communion until you get it right with your brother or sister in the Lord. That is what Paul said. That's what Jesus said. Because you are being sinful. Probably the greatest earmark of Christianity, biblical Christianity, is forgiveness the one thing that only god can do that we as humans cannot do that's the mark of jesus is forgiveness forgiving people who don't deserve it that's the essence of christianity and when you become a christian you are to model the life of christ and you're empowered to do so through the indwelling holy spirit and you're informed to do so through the word of god and the command of to forgive and the way to forgive so if you're a christian and you're unforgiving towards a fellow believer you're a living contradiction you're either a christian in sin or you're self-deceived and you're not a christian at all so we need to examine our hearts with this issue about forgiveness towards others. I had a seminary professor, and he's a, a pastor as well, been a pastor for 35 years, church planner. And he just always hammer away at this with us seminary guys. When you uh, get into the pulpit, you be, get into ministry, you become a pastor. 
Uh, don't ever try to do ministry from God if you've got uh, unresolved issues in your heart towards another believer, especially you men towards your wife. And he just gave an example. He committed himself. I would never preach a, a sermon on Sunday if I had a conflict with my wife on Saturday that was unresolved before Sunday. I just wouldn't preach. I wouldn't do that. And he said, by the grace of God, after 30 years of marriage, I have preached every sermon that I needed to preach on the following Sunday so that if we did have an issue on Saturday night, a breach, me and my wife, it was resolved and she admitted she was wrong. And so I was able to preach on Sunday. That is that's what he said. I know what he meant. Every once in a while, the husband can be wrong, too. So, But with that, look at uh, Matthew six, verse 13. No, starting at verse 12. So the Lord's Prayer, this is how a Christian is supposed to pray every day. God, forgive us of our debt. Father, forgive me for my sin as we also forgive others. This is a basic Christian discipline of forgiveness. Uh, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's interesting that those two verses go together because Satan can harden the heart of a Christian to the point they were unwilling to forgive another believer. They go together. There's a reason that verse is there. If you're a Christian and unforgiving towards another Christian, it could be you have a hardened heart from Satan himself. Satan is into unforgiveness. Jesus is into forgiveness. Whose team are you on? And then verse 14. Man, this is sobering. For if you forgive others, for if you forgive others who don't deserve to be forgiven, if you uh, forgive others who are in the wrong, if you forgive others that you don't like, if you forgive others and they haven't met all your conditions and expectations, for if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. If you don't forgive, you know how uh, the only thing it takes to get into heaven is to have all your sins forgiven. If you have unforgiven sin, then you don't get into heaven. So that's why that verse is so scary. You don't forgive others. The father isn't going to forgive you. Wow. That just exposed that person. That person is not a believer. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.